Welcome to the Tech Deep Dive podcast, where we let our inner nerd come out and have fun getting into the weeds on all things tech. At Clarksys, we believe tech should make your life better, searching Google is a waste of time, and the right vendor is often one you haven't heard of before. Hi, I'm Max Clark, and I'm talking with Eric Danowski, who is the CTO at Server Central Turing Group. Eric, thanks for joining. No problem. Glad to be here. So, Eric, um, obviously, Server Central Turing Group, you came from Turing Group and are now in CTO for the combined entity. Give me a little background. Like, let's start with a little, like, what was Server Central? What was Turing Group? And what are you guys now as, as one, one company? Sure, sure. I'll start with Turing Group since that's kind of my major background and, and partly why I'm here, partly with Server Central. So, back in 2013, I was working in the financial services industry, working for a hedge fund, managing kind of the whole team that ran all their global infrastructure. Started early on, we built everything out for them, and I was starting to get a little little itchy, a little bit bored, and uh, decided to really take some risks and decided to start Turing Group. So in 2013, my business partner and I started the company with a focus on providing technology solutions based on, at the time, specifically AWS, but very solutions-oriented. We believed that there was still a lot of companies that were moving to the cloud or starting to move to the cloud, but really doing it in the wrong way. They weren't embracing infrastructure as code. They weren't embracing automation. They weren't embracing APIs. It was still like, let's boot a server, let's install our software and you know run it. It was still very data center centric. And so we positioned ourselves as a company of experts that can help you leverage platforms like AWS as as they were intended to. And so we, you know, challenged this idea that I think a lot of folks had that you move something into Amazon, it's just it'll automatically be redundant, it'll automatically be backed up, and it'll just auto scale because that's the way things work in Amazon, right? Uh, <laughs> and and the reality is none of those things are true, uh, and you have to you have to design for those things and incorporate them into your strategy for using those services. And so that's what we did, and we built that company up along the way. Uh, I had known. You know, I've known Jordan actually since he started Server Central in, in the late 90s, 1999, I think 2000. And in the various roles I had been in previously, I purchased co-location space from Server Central. And so we'd been in contact and chatting. And when I started the company, you know, Jordan was kind of looped in on. And I shouldn't probably introduce Jordan so everyone knows. Jordan is one of the co-founders of Server Central. You know, we've been in contact and talking about what we're all doing and, and whatnot. And along the way, I had customers approaching me saying, you know, we love how you're helping us in in AWS. This is great. But we have other needs that span beyond just AWS. We need some help either with network backhaul or co-location or bare metal solutions or things of that nature. And as Turing Group, we didn't have answers for those. And so my answer was, hey, Jordan, I got someone I think you can work with. And, you know, that's probably a good segue into Server Central's history. So Jordan started Service Central in 2000, you know, doing primarily uh, hosting. And then as his customer base grew and his their needs grew, he um, you know evolved the company with Daniel Brosk into a data center and co-location company initially. But in the same way that our customers were looking to, for lack of a better term, outsource things to AWS, their customers were looking to you know outsource more in-house functions in terms of managing products and services. And so Service Central added on managed service capabilities. So things like managed backup, managed storage, managed firewalls, uh, managed private clusters, managed 
public cloud clusters, all based on VMware at the time, and things of that nature. And so, you know, I was kind of funneling some customers his way, and they were running into the opposite problem. They had customers that had signed agreements and and had maybe, you know, 50 cabinets and 200 kilowatts of power, a bunch of bandwidth and all kinds of great stuff, but they were starting to embark on their cloud journeys or cloud initiatives. And, you know, their CIOs and CTOs were saying, hey, well, how does Amazon fit in? Or we have an initiative. And Service Central didn't have an answer, didn't have a way to continue to work with some of those customers in a way that was, um, you know, meaningful. So over lunch one day, we were chatting and we're like, I think we have the same problem on opposite ends. And on one level, we might be viewed as competitors, but if we kind of bring this together, we can offer a much more interesting solution to our customers where we're not working against each other, but we're working with each other to build solutions. And so in late 2018, we decided to to bring all that together. So we became Server Central Turing Group or SCTG for short, so that we could work with some of those larger, more sophisticated customers that had use cases that necessitated both solutions on top of AWS, but also solutions within the data center and on top of more sort of classic platforms. But also Server Central liked that we had sort of this infrastructure as code automation first approach to everything that we did. We believed in you know everything being completely repeatable. You never did anything manually. Servers and instances should be ephemeral. You shouldn't treat them like your kids and nurture them. <laughs> you should bring them up for a reason, use it, and then dispose of it and be able to recreate it on the fly. So we started incorporating a lot of that thinking also into the sort of broader approach to how we did everything as a company. So yeah, lot, I, lot there. A <laughs> lot, lot, lot there. Actually, I'm, I'm laughing about your, your comment about yeah, it's in the cloud. It's obviously redundant and, yeah. and won't have an outage. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, flashing back to like every US East outage in the past like four years is taken down massive swaths of the internet. That's right. I mean, redundancy in clouds complicated too, right? Because you're not it's, just talking about, you know, having multiple instances running. Now you start talking about AZ redundancy, region redundancy, data replication, how does the application route, what lives where, where does it live? I mean, there, that that's a whole can of worms as well that you start opening up when you start looking at these sorts of things. Yeah, for sure. You know, what the public cloud provides is a set of building blocks and solutions that are distributed across multiple zones and regions. But you really have to factor that into your overall design and thinking to actually be able to take advantage of it. And you have to be pretty thoughtful about it. It's really easy to think that, yes, I'm running two instances across two regions that I'm fully highly available. And miss the fact that maybe you're using uh, one service somewhere under the hood that is a common single point of failure. In some ways, it actually creates even more complexity because it gives you that false sense of security, right? Like, well, yeah, no, we store all of our data in S3 and, and we're connecting to S3 just fine. And the S3 has, you know, 17 nines of availability or whatever it is. And then US East goes down and you can't even look at Amazon's status page because they forgot about that single point of failure. <laughs> You know, so it takes some strategy and and um, really complicated thinking into designing your applications correctly. And the other piece of that too is that a lot of enterprises aren't building their own applications; they're buying them, and they have limited options in terms of you know redesigning those apps to take full advantage of you know what the public cloud platforms can do uh, if you're in a position to control the architecture. 
one of my favorite examples. I mean, uh, you know, redundancy in cloud is it requires a lot of diligence. It requires a lot of you know energy and and continual diligence towards this. And Netflix was very famous for releasing their platform right. for this chaos monkey years right. ago, right? Which literally randomly turns things off inside mm-hmm. of their AWS environment. I mean, you want to talk about like really taking this to an extreme of you know, are we should be resilient and redundant? You know, we're just going to randomly log in and select something running and just go boom and disable it and and right. does our system recover? Right. I would imagine you're probably not advocating for that for most of your customers at this point. But I mean, that is a pretty that's a that's a pretty amazing goal to have of saying at any moment right. anything can be disabled randomly and the, and the application is still going to work. Yeah, you know, I won't say that we don't advocate for it. I would say that we're thoughtful about when we advocate for it in the sense of where are we at in the life cycle of the solution that we're building. And it doesn't really matter actually whether it's an AWS or something that we're building in our data centers or on top of our infrastructure. You know, if it's an early phase of testing and we really want to test a lot of assumptions, we'll bring in some folks that weren't involved in the design that won't make the same assumptions and play chaos monkey. Uh, (laughs) And then it also depends on, you know, what our clients are asking for. And in some cases, we have had clients want us to test production systems like that. And we'll, we'll do our best uh, in those situations. But the other, the other interesting thing about it is creation, I think, of public cloud and the adoption of infrastructure as code and automation at scale has introduced a new point of failure, which didn't exist to the same scale historically, which is the um, engineer. Uh, and if you think back to the US East outage of S3 that we were just talking about, that wasn't a technical failure. There was no design flaw in the architecture of S3 such that you know it, it caused that outage. The outage was caused by an uh, engineer making a mistake on one of the commands that they were running for performing maintenance. And what automation and infrastructure as code and uh, a uh, large-scale control of a massive fleet of infrastructure does is it puts a lot of power to do something in the hands of one person. And I can't overemphasize like the need now for good operational practices, process, and control, everywhere from change control to peer review, because you know you can accidentally take out entire environments with a single command or a single typo in a configuration file. Whereas before, you know, maybe you had to log into a fleet of servers or something like that. But now, you know, we have one customer we manage some IoT devices for, and there's thousands and thousands of them out in the field. And one mistyped command, and we can brick them all. Uh, yeah. So, so I think that, the, you know, the advent of this approach to infrastructure has created new, new, new challenges and new problems. So I'm going to use a bingo word, which is uh, cloud transformation or digital transformation or customer journey, right? You know, they call it kind mm-hmm. of, you know, they get lumped in together at some point. And, mm-hmm. and at one point, Amazon and public cloud was new. And now we've got, you know, a lot of competition at different sizes between Amazon, Google and Azure. And, you know, a company, you know, is looking at these things of, okay, I'm maintaining data centers. Is this efficient? Or I've decided, you know, I'm in the cloud. Is this efficient? Or I've decided to move to the cloud. And, and, and it's, a, it's still surprising how wide the scale of where people actually still are yeah. this, this this transformation are but you know let, let's say i came to you 
and I was still running, uh, let's say I still had some on-premise equipment and maybe I had some IaaS with a VMware cloud somewhere and, and, and we walked into your, well, we wouldn't walk into your office anymore, but we, we talked to you and said, Hey, we want to, we want to move this into public cloud. Right. Right. You know, walk me through what that experience is like, you know, with, with, SCTG and how you take an organization through that process. Cause sure. it, you know, you, you, you talk about it earlier. It's not just like, okay, let's just replicate everything and, and just turn it on over here. I mean, that's not a good end state. So. Right. You know, right. It's interesting that you asked that because, um, you know, we've evolved our methodology and our, our process, you know, over the years, when we started turn group, I was a technologist. I, I really enjoyed building things and we would work with our customers and almost immediately jump to solutioning. Okay. Okay. This is what you're trying to do. Perfect. We need a, we need an API gateway over here and you know what, we'll use EBS for that and we can use SQS over here. And like within 10 minutes of our, of starting our engagement with our customer, we're like whiteboarding. And that was a lot of fun. It was, you know, it was great. (laughs) And we built some pretty (laughs) cool stuff, but what we learned pretty quickly is as we moved into more complicated organizations that were, you know, decentralized, we walked into organizations maybe that had, attempted migrations and failed that had 22 Amazon accounts that they just discovered accidentally the other day, they didn't know they had things like that. We realized we couldn't jump to solutioning right away. We had to really engage with the customer and ask them what problem they were trying to solve. And you'd be surprised many times, there was not an answer at, you know, at the tip of their tongue. And it's like, well, we're trying to do this. And we'd ask one more question. They're like, no, 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 no. We're, well, our, our CTO said we had to do it or, or something like that, right? And so what we learned over, over, the, over the years was that we really had to take some time up front to understand where our customers were at with their business, what the drivers were, how they arrived with the technology stack they have today, and really what problem they were ultimately trying to solve. Um, because the answer in some cases is, well, you know, we're trying to save cost. Okay, fine. That, that's, that might be possible, but that's going to have an influence on the design. Uh, no, we're actually trying to solve a capacity problem. You know, we, we, need, we need 500 servers, but we only need them for a month and we don't want to buy them. Or uh, we're trying to avoid having to build all this stuff in-house. We really want to just focus on our core capabilities and not worry about managing, you know, Redis servers or something like that. So we generally start most of our conversations now with the why, what are you trying to achieve? And once we get to a a core understanding of that, um, that usually shifts onto an assessment of some sort, meaning, you know, let's, let's really get a good sense of, of what you have. Um, And I know we're talking very sort of public cloud focused at the moment, but in that sense, like, a lot of times, you know, customers would, would try to do a one-to-one mapping, right? Well, I've got 27 servers on-prem. Well, that's 27 instances in, in you know, in, in AWS or Azure. That's not the case, right? Or it's that, well, no, I have 27 servers and each one has eight cores and 16 gig of memory, right? If you do any sort of, you know, rudimentary analysis, you'll probably find they're highly underutilized. And so doing a one-to-one mapping that way, you're going to spend way more money than you should. And then also, if they're you know trying to solve for redundancy or scale problems, again we're we're running into that challenge of them having assumptions about what the public cloud offers. So I think it's it's a very consultative approach initially, um, and and we kind of help our customers w- and in the sense of just walking through them, walking them through the entire process, you know, setting expectations about what kind of costs they could expect, 
setting expectations of what they can expect from a DR and data recovery perspective, you know, setting expectations in terms of governance. We've got so many customers that just want to, you know, let people loose in the council. And then they're shocked when they get a bill for 200 grand, <laughs> you know, I, I've, I mean, everybody I think has that horror story at this point. I mean, it just comes down to how significant it was. I mean, I've, I have one customer who, you know, um, they didn't realize it and they spun something up to test it and made a configuration change. And it was $65,000 after two and a half weeks. And the capacity of, I mean, it's awesome that you can spin up that kind of resource instantaneously and have yeah. that capacity. But then you get into whole governance. I mean, you mentioned that beforehand. Governance becomes very important as well. Like, right. You know, who is doing what, why, when, how, where, you know, and, and right. what's the fiscal you know, impact for it? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's it, it, it goes on and on. Like, uh, we, we had a financial services firm approach us saying they wanted to move um, their, all the, they, they had dockerized all of their applications and they wanted to move everything to either Azure or AWS, but keep their database on-prem. On prem. And we did some analysis of the traffic uh, going in and out of their database, which they hadn't really thought about. They just kind of were like, well, we've got, you know, two 10 gig connections and low latency. It should be fine until you factor in the fact that Amazon's going to charge you two and a half cents a gig. Yeah. On that direct you know? connect. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So once we did the math, it was like, well, your, your you know, compute's going to cost you two, three grand a, a month and your bandwidth is going to cost you 85 you sure this is still where you want to go? <laughs> you know, so again, another reason to do kind of that thoughtful planning and analysis approach before, you know, just jumping in. So in short, Max, we'd ask you, uh, why are you trying to do this? <laughs> you know, the bandwidth is an interesting point. It's usually overlooked in this conversation until you start getting the bills and you start digging into the, I mean, Amazon bills are not easy yeah. to read. There's entire, there's an entire industry just to help people that's, read and understand their right. Amazon bills. That's right. But, you know, egress costs are significant and they build very fast. And this also has an implication now, as we see, I, I feel like there was a rush to the cloud and this idea of, okay, the cloud will be cheaper, or the cloud will be easier, or the cloud will be this, or the, you know, or the next thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then now that we have organizations started in cloud, you know, a decade ago, and are looking at it a decade later and realizing what they're actually spending, what are they spending it on? Do they have a predictable, app, you know, workload or cycle or things that are actually right. occurring? And now we're, we're, we're having conversations about, should it be in the cloud or should it come back off the cloud? Right. And that's complicated as well, but there is advantages to have, you know, okay, we'll use the marketing term, hybrid environments where you mm -hmm. have some in the cloud and, and some. So how, how do you guys navigate that? You know, what's, is this something that you're driving through customers? Like, hey, we noticed that you guys are running, you know, a static workload effectively, and you should really think about doing this something different, or are they driving the conversation or does it start with cost? Hey, we're spending a yeah. ridiculous amount of money. What do we do here? I mean, what's... Uh, it goes both ways. So... I think we probably have to first divide that into two two different categories. Why someone is approaching us, maybe you know a prospect, and what that conversation looks like versus existing customers that we have today that might be on AWS and looking to go on-prem, or or vice versa, or looking to go hybrid. Um, so for for existing customers, we try to engage and meet with them. Uh, you know, at, at kind of an executive and strategic level on a quarterly basis, just to have some conversations with how things are going. We look at 
their utilization both in the cloud and on-prem. And if we start seeing things that look kind of wonky or kind of interesting, or if we start seeing bills that just where we know that they don't need to be spending that kind of money on something. You know, we have one social media customer that we've been working with that has been using S3 to store petabytes of of information, but then they use S3 as their origin source. And we are looking at these bills going like, this is, this is insane. <laughs> like you're paying so much in egress fees that like, there's got to be a better way to do this. Right. And, and so we were able to have that conversation with them and say, well, first thing at a minimum, if you put cloud front in front of it, you can reduce your cost by 50% because transfer from cloud front to S3 is free and you're only paying cloud cloud front, you know, fees. So, so we were able to kind of come to them and, and, and sort of give them even just that little tidbit of information. But then we also say, well, you know, let's do that immediately because that's almost not even a technical, there's almost no technical impact and you can start seeing smaller bills. But, you know, we run our own on-prem petabyte scale object storage solution and our fees are nowhere near Amazon's and we can give you the same price point. So unless you're doing something that's Amazon, you know, specific with S3, like triggering Lambda functions or something like that, you know, we have a solution that's on-prem that, that, that will perform to the same level, if not better if you're in our region and and we can save you significantly a significant amount of money from what you're spending on AWS on the flip side you know if we see customers are constantly pinging us saying please add another terabyte of storage to to our managed you know cluster or i need a new server i need a new server i need a new server like if that's happening all the time and then they're having conversations with us to decom stuff you know before the contracts up and we're just seeing like God, they don't they don't have that predictable workload. We should probably dig in and understand what's driving that variability in their infrastructure needs and consumption. Um, and in those cases, we might recommend saying, you know what, you're 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 better off, you know, working in an environment where you can throw instances away on a daily basis. Um, you know, and and we'll have those recommendations. Or another example might be that's not really related to performance was the company we were working with that has all the IoT products out there. In in one case, we could have gone on-prem and developed an IoT solution from scratch, or we could have put them in AWS or Azure and used the IoT service offerings that both of the, both of them have. Um, in one case, the time to market would probably be 18 months. In the other case, time to market would be three months. That was a big thing for them. And so being able to jump on a platform that exists, that we know to work, and just get going right away was well worth any you know increasing cost that they might see because we can we can do that. Well, and that's a really good important point, right? Because what you're talking about really is actually understanding the trade-offs and spending money for velocity. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you know, businesses look at this from the standpoint of how long does it take us to get into market and what does it actually cost us? Are you are you allocating re- um, resources in equipment, in hosting costs, in people, in whatever it is, right? But ultimately, it's it's you're investing in velocity, right? And I think that's a really good example of where the cloud's great, right? Because you can you can get into managed services and you can experiment and you don't have to commit to something and you can mm-hmm. increase your velocity. But it requires you to take the next step, which is at some point, come back and look at it and reevaluate your decisions and say, is this the right thing for us still? Right. You know? Right. And I see that a lot with, I mean, I don't know how many services Amazon has offhand. It's too many to count. 
well, I mean, somebody counts it, but the, the point is well over 200. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And every week there's more, yeah. right? But I know it's terrible. The, the, the problem that comes out of it now is you, you get into situations like Elastic Cloud, uh, Elastic Cash, you can, or Elasticsearch, you know, there's, there's a half a dozen, dozen different ways of running Elasticsearch, not counting the products that are API compatible with Elasticsearch that That's can right. run directly against S3. And like each one of these has really significant price differentials for you mm-hmm. and, and what these things cost. I mean, I won't pick on Elasticsearch, but I mean, it's, it's true for everything now on Amazon. You run it this yeah. way, it costs this right. much. You run it this way, it costs this much. You run it this way, it costs that much. And it all gives you the same thing, but at different scales. So it, that makes it interesting, right? Because you have to constantly be looking at it and talking with customers and saying, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Let's do this differently. You're in the cloud. Cloud has changed. Great. You know, something new has come out. Now it's time for you to change. Yeah. I I mean, I'll tell you the one thing that we're finding that's the one common denominator is companies are less and less interested in managing. I I don't want to say infrastructure because I feel like that's one layer below what I want to say, but they're less interested in managing core infrastructure related application services, meaning like they want to use Elasticsearch. They don't want to install it. They don't want to set it up. They don't want to figure out how to shard it. They don't want to figure out how to tune it. They just want to use it. They want to install Redis. They want to install Aerospike. They want to install Cassandra. They want to use all these different sort of core components that you know make up an application. Maybe it's you know ActiveMQ or or whatever it might be. And so where we kind of fit in is that we understand where those things fit in in an application stack, what it takes to run them and operate them. And where we're different than say AWS or Azure is that when your use cases start to uh, move into the perimeter to the edges of the normal use cases, and those providers are no longer good for you, then we can give you interesting solutions. So, you know, it's, you're only going to take Redis so so far in AWS before either you hit performance limits or you hit budget limits. Um, and, and everything that AWS does is geared towards that, like, what is the most common use scenario from, and, and what are the most common performance characteristics? And once you start to get outside of those boundaries, then those providers no longer are a good fit. And and these numbers, I mean, the differential here is it's almost shocking when you see them the first time because it, it's so high. I mean, uh, Kinesis, you know, k- running Kinesis versus running different versions of managed Kafka versus running your own mm-hmm. managing your own Kafka instances on top of EC2. Right. Uh, we did a project for a customer, and I think the differential from Kinesis to them running their own instances was like 5x. It was right. 5x more expensive for them to run Kinesis and run their own infrastructure. Right. And, right. you know if that bill was $10,000 a month, you know, maybe it's not worth it for them to develop the, you know, to devote engineering time, but you mm-hmm. know, they were spending a quarter million dollars a month on Kinesis. And all of a sudden that's, that's a real significant number. I mean, you're talking right. about a substantial amount of, of, of salaries within the organization, just in that one decision about, you know, this or, or that. And right. You have to maintain the engineers to, to run and operate that stuff and the expertise and and it, it, again, if if you're in that one particular, you know, if you fall within the, that norm range, then you know, public cloud's probably just fine. But if you start stepping outside of that, it doesn't make sense. Hi, I'm Max Clark, and you're listening to the Tech Deep Dive podcast. At Clark says we believe tech should make your life better. Searching Google is a waste of time, and the right vendor is often one you haven't heard of before. 
With thousands of negotiated contracts, Clarksys has helped hundreds of businesses source and implement the right tech at the right price. If you're looking for a new vendor and want to have peace of mind knowing you've made the right decision, visit us at clarksys.com to schedule an intro call. So now we're in a world of you know, hybrid cloud, right? Really this mm-hmm. idea of you've got some sort of physical infrastructure somewhere and what does that actually look like? Sure. And then of course, multi-cloud. People, people look at multi-cloud and I have different opinions on multi-cloud, but I'm kind of curious to hear what your, your opinion on this is. But when you look at hybrid cloud and physical infrastructure, I mean, going back to your point of, you know, companies, they don't want to manage it and they're used to a consumption model and it, it becomes like, hey, I just want to run containers. I want to run Kubernetes right. somewhere. Right. How is Server Central addressing that? And what has become your, you know, at some point, you know, there's there's customization, but at some point, you know, but at, at the same token, right, there is a certain, let's say, generic approach where most people fit into 80% of the same solution. <laughs> and, and And how do you approach that? So first of all, I, I wish more companies were further along the uh, containerization route. <laughs> it does help move the conversation forward about multi-cloud. I used to think that multi-cloud was kind of a distraction. I used to think that our hybrid cloud solutions were, were a distraction that if you wanted to really realize the power of AWS, you have to use AWS to its fullest extent. You have to leverage cloud formation. You have to use their their load balancer. You have to use their APIs. You've got to, you just got to buy into the whole thing. And that's when you really can take advantage of what they have to offer. And if you say fold it in Azure into that mix, what you've done is reduced both providers to the least common denominator. And you're no longer getting the true value add that each of those providers can add and the special things that they have. But as we are, as as we sort of engage with more enterprises, um, the the notion of keeping or staying on a single cloud is is not tenable, and that's for a number of reasons. One is uh, the services that either that all the different providers provide aren't identical; they're not easily replicated across both sides, right? And larger enterprises are concerned about outages. You know, we've seen massive outages over at Google. Um, and GCP problems when you know their routers went down, and we've seen significant companies go offline for it. Uh, you know, one of our customers, I think, broke their streak of like having I don't remember five or six out, uh, years without a single outage, and because of Google, they were down. You know, so that that's a legitimate concern. I mean, actually, US, uh, I'm sorry, EU West and AWS today had issues, and so you know, people want to distribute their their risk. Also, I think from the hybrid piece, uh, you know, we have customers approaching us that have significant stable workloads. Um, we're working with a social media company that has a need to probably, I think probably close to 500 servers live all the time just to serve the base number of requests coming in at any given time. Uh, but they might have a celebrity on their platform uh, post something. That celebrity will have, we'll call it 3 million followers. Uh, and when 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 she posts something, it generates a massive amount of traffic to update the feeds of all those millions of followers. And under normal circumstances, you know, you might go a month and you don't need that. And you don't need the compute. You don't need the infrastructure to support that until that celebrity posts something. And then all of a sudden things go crazy and they only go crazy for, you know, six hours. <laughs> so scenarios like that where, you know, I can't back up an extra 500 servers 
in less than, you know, a minute, get them racked and ready to go and, you know, hand it off to you. Nobody wants to invest that kind of capital and sit on it when they don't need it. So things like, you know, hybrid solutions where, you know, I can spin up 500 instances in AWS in a matter of minutes and have your workload augmented and have that capacity available for you. To your point about containerization, none of that stuff is achievable really without containerization. And you have to really also be thinking about your application and designing it in, uh, I think, what, what is now being termed a cloud-native way, uh, meaning that it's it's very, very independent of underlying infrastructure or proprietary APIs. And so kind of what's going on in the in the world of containerization right now is, is the only way to achieve that. And we're seeing big plays. I mean, so, you know, we have Kubernetes from Google. Stuus has just bought Rancher Labs for several hundred million dollars. I mean, there was a feeding frenzy for that one. There's there's uh, expectations of, I mean, we're going to see Snowflake IPO here pretty soon. That's expected to be a big one. But HashiCorp as well. A lot of people don't know HashiCorp unless you're, you know, an infrastructure nerd, right? And then all of a sudden you're like, well, what's HashiCorp? And they're going to have their expectations pretty high as well. You know, it's interesting you talk about social media and this like kind of elastic capacity from the sense that this goes back for me years, like the dot coms in the late 90s. And we had this idea that like every page had to be dynamically generated. And the reality was, well, no, every page didn't have to be dynamically generated. There was smart ways that you could do simple caching. And even if you were mm-hmm. just caching for 60 seconds, it made massive differences to your infrastructure right. requirements. Right. And you go, oh, well, it can be five minutes. And it can be, oh, well, if it's five minute cache, it's massive differences in your infrastructure. And that's really true also now with public cloud and and hybrid cloud and, this, and private resources of, you know, the cost differential is so massively different. You know, it's 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 hard to really quantify that for people. Mm-hmm. They'll believe you, but you know, like oh, you're going to spend four x what you're going to spend. You know, AWS is going to cost you four x what it would cost you to have a, a private environment. And, and no, that can't be true. No, no, it's really true. Amazon is going to cost you four x and what a private environment is going to cost you. But what does your private environment need to look like, and how do you right. s- maintain that? How do you size it? And now people don't want to maintain data centers anymore. So how do you maintain that infrastructure? And who does those sort of things for you have, have, have turned into a, a different conversation. And now, you know, managed services providers are, are filling that void again and coming back in. And it's, it's, this, it's this very di- interesting dynamic where, you know, Amazon was killing all of the MSPs offering managed services related to data centers. But now all these data center companies are, are really back in the front again because mm-hmm. companies realize like, wait, we have to go back. You know, we want. Yeah. I don't think we've seen too many folks moving back unless they're a really large player or they're doing a lot of traffic. You know, those are those are the things that are are really pushing customers back. What we're seeing is is there's still a lot of mid-market just corporate world in general is still very much about public cloud and not ready to get out, right? Companies that are are running just regular servers, installing their commercial off-the-shelf applications, running databases, running analytics workloads. We'll call them not internet companies, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they get a lot of flexibility. What it, what they can do is really empower their employees in the sense of, well, now I don't have to call IT. I don't have to get budget approval for servers. I don't have to wait four weeks for them to arrive. I don't have to wait for people to rack them and stack them. I can just get started on my project, mm-hmm. right? And there's a lot of value in that. And corporations are still taking advantage of it. So I think that that initiative is still happening. We have customers that are in the data center that are actively in the process of migrating to AWS and Azure. And the great part is, is we're part of the conversation and we're helping them. 
where we're seeing that push back, that move back from public cloud back into the data center is in the larger internet companies, anyone that's pushing a lot of media, you know, video, it gets expensive, storage is expensive, and and the transit stuff. Like, you know, I mean, that's part of the reason why we built our own managed object storage solution, right? We, we're hosting, you know, petabytes of, of data on it because the companies that really need to use object storage to that degree, you know, the public cloud providers just don't scale in terms of cost. I, I have a question here for you. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Late 90s, if you were an internet company, there was a template from a from a VC firm. And the template said, in order for you to be a serious company, you had to run Oracle, you had to run WebLogic, you were running Netscape Web Server, sure. and you were running right. all these things on Sun servers. And that was the, if you wanted to be a real internet company, you had to have this template. And there were, <laughs> and there were, That's right. And, and, and it wasn't until there were some companies that started really breaking that mold. We saw... You know, eToys. eToys had a uh, you know Mod Pearl with this custom caching layer and NetApp appliances, and it started releasing information around what their traffic profile looked like and what their relative infrastructure requirement was. And oh, by the way, it's all open source. It doesn't cost us anything to run this thing. And then it became oh well, if they can run it, maybe we can run it now as well. And 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 the mold kind of adjusted a little bit and became a little bit more adaptable, and other companies could follow suit. And I feel mm-hmm. like that was the case as well with you know, with, with this conversation of cloud versus hybrid versus multi versus whatever it was, well, we have this mandate, we have to go to cloud, there's no, we have to be there, because that's where we have to be. And it feels like that's loosened up a little bit, where it's, it's acceptable, if you're not on AWS, and if you're on Google, or if you're on Azure, and it's acceptable, if you're on two at the same time, and it's acceptable, if you still have physical resources somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, that have a strategic advantage for you. Sure. I definitely think it is acceptable. There's probably areas of that though that are not. You know, I think if I was looking at a company and they're still running their own email platform, <laughs> I'd go, "Why are you doing that?" <laughs> well, unless unless they're an email business, right? I mean, unless they're an email business, that's true. Yes, that's true. Yes. But if they're if they're you know a few hundred people company and you know call it $100 million of revenue, I'd be like, why are you running exchange servers? <laughs> as somebody who started out as an exchange admin with an exchange cert, like I, I firmly support you on that. Nobody should be running their mail servers <laughs> at all. <laughs> so I, I think there's still some areas uh, within the, the corporate IT stack that, that I would look at and go, like, why are you doing that? There's way better solutions to it. And maybe it's not necessarily public cloud, but maybe a, a SaaS provider of some sort. And and I think also I would probably look at a stack and not necessarily think about it. You know, if I was a VC and I'm coming in to sort of do my technology due diligence, I wouldn't necessarily look at their solution in terms of is it on Azure or is it in AWS or or on prem. I would probably be more focused on the operations aspects of it and what choices did you make in terms of deployment how do you do your deployments you know what open source projects have you picked what is at the core how is it architected is it containerized or not how manageable is it how scalable is it and how much of a you know versus a frankenstein solution is probably where i would start digging how how supportable is it how manageable is it and how scalable is it and not necessarily what platform is it on the stats on Amazon, or sorry, on Microsoft Azure, it's like 50%, 60% of their compute is running Linux and not Microsoft workload. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty amazing stat. You know, I mean, who would have thought? 
I'm a, I, I won't lie. I went from, uh, you know, Microsoft was the Borg to I'm a huge fan of Satya and everything that he's doing. 100%. He's a very smart man. Um, 100%. Yeah. It's, you know, they're, they're talking about adopting Rust as, the, as their next programming language, you know, .NET Core running on Linux. We just helped a customer build, uh, we wrote the backend API for a, a customer-facing portal. And the customer facing portal is all written in .NET containerized, which is great. <laughs> five years ago, you'd never imagine to have that conversation, right? No, you like know? like like five years ago, I would have been like, "Oh, it's .NET. We're staying away." <laughs> so, so that's actually an interesting thing we haven't talked about at all with this because, uh, you know, SCTG is more than just you're not you're not giving somebody advice around managed services or SRE functions or these kind of DevOps roles of you know hey we're going to help you figure out how to run this in Amazon or how to make sure Amazon's running right you're actually writing code for people and helping people build platforms or modify their mm-hmm. existing systems or figure out hey you know I've got this application that was running on premise and now you want to move it and you want to make it cloudy and this is what we have to do with it that's right. Uh, let's, That's right. Let's let's talk about that a little bit because I mean, the, the, I don't want to gloss over this. This is a really big deal. Yeah, you know that that that's a little bit of our the Turing Group roots that come through. You know, if you remember when we talked about when we started that company, that we were effectively a group of of consultants, right? We were technologists that had that were really smart about how to design and build distributed systems and 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 do that within the public cloud. So. When I talked about how well, we first just jumped in and started talking about solutions without understanding the why, that trajectory led us to this place where the nature of our conversations with all of our customers changed. We weren't talking about gigabytes and you know how many terabytes of disk you need. We were talking about what problems are you trying to solve, right? And defining those problems and understanding them in a business context. Um, and so... Our conversations now with many of our customers are 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 exactly that. Um, and then when they sort of learn that, hey, we have an understanding around this stuff, they ask for help in building it and help in designing it and help in architecting it. Um, and so in many cases, we get involved either as the development team, as part of a development team, or as advisors to a, a development team. But we, we, we also sort of act as advisors in, in many other different ways. So you know, we had a, a university approach us recently, and they had no idea how to pursue building, you know, a campus-wide fiber network. But you know, we have a massive, you know, fiber backbone, and 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 are experts in networking. Like, why why can't we leverage that and help them achieve their goals? Right. So we're sort of unique and special in that sort of way, in that we can act as this technology solutions company advisors. But we also have our own infrastructure and capabilities to support those solutions. So it's different from like a traditional consulting company in that sense. And it's also different from a managed services company in that sense. Sure, can I give you a sales order for you know a petabyte of object storage? I can, but I want to make sure you're going to succeed with it first. <laughs> so uh, since since you went there, let's talk about this. Rust. Node.js, Ruby on Rails, .NET, PHP, Cold Fusion. Let's put that out there. Python, Scala, Java. I I mean, that's that. Okay, right. I mean, these are all still to different degree. I mean, popular languages that are are there. I mean, that's a lot of skill set to have. 
is this stuff that you guys are dictating and saying, hey, you know, we've got this project and this should be in Rust and this should be in Node.js, mm-hmm. or this should be in this? Or is it you're finding that the customers are saying, hey, you know, we hear that, uh, you know, the hot thing right now is, uh, you know, we want to run GraphQL with 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 Vue. You know, can you help us? Right. right. We will comment on language um, if if a customer is not yet decided in, in um, one particular language. You know, I think we're not dogmatic in terms of tooling, I would say. I would say we're dogmatic on architecture and philosophy and design choices. Um, so in the sense that, you know, could you make this work in Node.js? You could. Could it be done in Go? It certainly could. Could it be done in C++? Yes. Are some of those better than others? Yes, they are. So we're, I think we're very much of the opinion of the right tool for the job. But I think we take other aspects under consideration. One is, are we developing it or is your team developing it? And what does it mean for your business to have to, I don't know, let's take Perl, for example, to support and run a Perl application? Is Perl a bad language? You know, we can debate that all day long. <laughs> can you hire Perl developers? That's not as debatable. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's not even, could you find people that know Perl? It's, can you find people that know Perl that are going to come work for you? building Perl at this point, you know, and that's, and I still use Perl almost every day. I mean, I just, I, you know, old habits die hard with certain things and it's, yeah. you know, it's an easy yeah. language to do certain things in, and, and, yeah. you know, I find myself there all the time. Yeah. Some languages are unavoidable in certain areas. So if we're talking about probably the land of, uh, you know, infrastructure automation, you're either talking Python or Ruby and that's, that's it, right? Like you're not doing infrastructure automation in, in C++, right? If you're doing it in in you know PHP, God help you. <laughs> um, so I, I think in in certain contexts, there's there's things like that. There's also technical considerations, right? Like if you, if you are thinking like, well, I really like some of the virtues of Elixir, but we want to use Lambda. Well, there's no Elixir runtime, so uh, you don't have a choice, right? Um, you know, so I think in all those areas, including um, you know, what kind of uh, pub sub or messaging bus should you use? We'll have opinions um, and we'll help navigate those things. And we're, we're also happy to um, engage in research and leverage our connections to to make sure that we're making the right recommendations. Environments went from physical servers to virtualization to public cloud, right? Instances on public cloud, containerization now, of course. I mean, if you're mm-hmm. not containerized, you should get containerized as quickly as possible. Disclaimer. And now there's a there's a pretty big push into you know serverless functions and function execution and whether or not right. that's in the form of an you know lambda or these different you know CDNs that are offering code runtimes on the edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I've kind of wondered about with this for a while is, is not so much the is this important and is this going to have a big change with how people actually architect their applications, but with containerization you have a certain amount of portability that's very easy. And how much portability do you have with with a serverless function? And if you're making the decision to go down this path with AWS with Lambda, you know, even with all the efficiencies and neat things that you get out of it and things you don't have to think about, right? Because you're not, I mean, mm-hmm. even even with Docker, now you're talking about you have to you have some sort of CI CD pipeline that's building an application, creating a container, pushing, you know, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. I mean, you go serverless. I mean, I mean, it, it really it's like you have nothing. There is nothing you're you're thinking about. Is that in itself risky? in terms of vendor buy-in, uh, lock-in, and, and mm-hmm, cloud lock-in, mm-hmm. and portability? Mm-hmm. There is risk, but I think it's different. And, and I have two points to bring up on that. 
The first point is one of our customers, we actually built a, a fairly large serverless application for them in AWS on top of uh, Node.js as the core backend. So it was API Gateway, it was um, Lambdas, it was some SNS, Dynamo, handful of other things. And that customer was courting a prospect in the retail industry. And that prospect said, um, we need in our contracts that you won't use any platforms on top of Amazon because we don't like Jeff Bezos and we don't want any money at all going towards him. So if you want to work with us, you can't use AWS basically is what it came down to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I felt really bad for our customer because their whole thing was built on top of Lambda, which is, you know, feels pretty proprietary. And they asked us, they, they paid us to do some analysis of what would it take to port that to Azure functions. And, we're like, God, these guys are nuts. No way. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's a, it's going to be a complete and total rewrite. And like for one customer and like, you know, we, 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 we did all our hand waving and then eventually said, okay, fine, we'll, we'll go do the analysis. And the result was surprising. While there was refactoring needed and there wasn't, you know, pure API compatibility between various services, the code that needed the least amount of refactoring was the Lambda code because 90% of the code within the function was straight up Node.js, straight up JavaScript, nothing proprietary. You could actually copy it and run it you know, locally with the Node.js command line. So, so the code the, that, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say, so you're talking about the code, the issue code being like DynamoDB code versus... More of like, okay, well, you know what? The, piece, the pieces that talk to Dynamo need to get modified because Azure doesn't have a Dynamo, right? Or the pieces that talk SNS. In fact, actually, those were easy because, you know, you abstract most of that through abstraction layers. The more challenging area was authentication and IAM because those two things vary significantly uh, between the providers. So that was probably the most challenging piece. And then also we were using, in that case, the AWS IoT stack. And we had to move to Azure IoT. So there's a little bit of work there, but we walked. The, the moral of the story is we walked away thinking, at the beginning, yeah, this is a total rewrite. To I think we could do this in about twenty percent of the total time invested and reuse probably you know eighty percent of the original code. So it wasn't. Was it great? No. Was it the end of the world? Also, no. It, it is possible. But the, I think so. That's that's one part of your your question about vendor lock in and risk and things like that. But I think the second piece that that I like to think about and and also why we exist <laughs> is uh you know you you talked about we went from bare metal to you know virtualization you know now everyone's running on VMware to you know the cloud and now you know containers and and now functions and all this other stuff and what the outcome of all of that has been has been a complete and total explosion of complexity because we have abstraction layer on top of abstraction layer on top of abstraction layer. And the developer that's writing Lambda code doesn't have any idea about how it's actually running and how it's talking to the network and how it's communicating, right? There's so many levels of abstraction and also so many tools. If we think about Kubernetes from, uh, you know, ingress utilities and, and, and processes, I mean, there's, 
Kubernetes is a is an orchestration of like, you know, we'll call it 30 different processes that all have to work together just right, right? And from different companies and different sources. And what we're seeing is that our companies don't want to understand that complexity. And they want to outsource it. They want to outsource it to companies like us, <laughs> right? They, they don't want to figure it out. They, they just want it to work. They just want to write their code. They want to hit deploy and, and just make it all happen, right? <laughs> and so it's just in a level of expertise that you have to keep in-house. You need to have people that know all these different things and know them really well and are nimble and are ready to evolve. Like if you watch the you know, number of products on the, I think the Cloud Native Compute Foundation keeps a, keeps a great chart of all the different technologies involved in developing cloud native applications. It's, there's 200 things on there, right? <laughs> but so it's I crazy. Mean, I, okay, so there's some strong personalities on the internet that are advocating for um, monolithic applications again, like this return sure. to the majestic monolith. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, at the same time, you see people posting their services oriented architecture, what, what their actual application flow is, and we'll use like Lambda, right? You know, we're, we went functions, yeah. And, and there's a flow chart and there's, you know, 50, 60 things on this flow chart in order to do, do something like, do, and, and yeah, I mean, that, that comes back to your point. I mean, it's interesting when you look at the complexity and the interactions and how do you maintain these applications and what are you actually doing with it? And I, that comes back for me into the, I mean, as you said, like, what are you trying to do and why are you trying to do it? You know? If you're just trying to send an email out, is this the right way for you to send an email out? You know, that might be not the, the yeah. smartest plan yeah. here. You know, I think, Max, is that, again, I, I talk about this notion of being dogmatic <laughs> about approaches in technology. And I think we always need to keep an open mind and understand what problem we're going after and then choose the right tools, technologies, and approach to get the job done. Secondly, I think complexity is like energy. It doesn't ever go away. It just transforms, right? <laughs> you can never destroy energy. We just move it from one state and one way of being to a different state or way of being. And so, you know, maybe we had monolithic applications that were 2.8 million lines, you know, good God, good luck trying to find where the bug is in that code, right? To, you know what? We don't have any single app that's more than 180 lines of code today. Good luck untangling the infrastructure and the transaction path between your functions to figure out where the problem happened. Now you've got to learn this highly complicated distributed transaction debugging tool. <laughs> so all we've done is move the complexity from here, you know, to there. <laughs> right. You know, so it's it's even in the exchange example, we moved the complexity from our exchange admin sitting in our office and running the cluster in our data center to Microsoft's. <laughs> yeah. It's not simpler, simpler for me today, but someone's absorbing the complexity. I mean, what's really impressive about this for me, and it never really gets, it never gets old. I'm always in awe of this is, you know, you went from the internet being very nascent and coming on the internet with modems and, and this evolution and SDSL coming out and people having broadband and, and now, you know, phones with really good connectivity everywhere and this explosion of devices and data. And people used to call it like web scale. We're really talking about like planet wide civilization scale applications are available at your yeah. fingertips right. with, with, with now. And and that the ability for velocity, this idea of velocity of very quickly being able to develop and roll things out and right. and and produce things that can be consumed planet wide is is never. I mean, it, it never ceases to amaze me. I look at this with wonderment every time I think about it. But then I take a step back and I say, okay, great. So now you've built this thing. Now you have to make sure it's running. You have to keep it online to make sure you don't bankrupt yourself in the process. You right. know, 
oops, we we had an S3 bucket directly connected to the internet and somebody's downloaded all of our medical <laughs> transcription files and we just leaked all these patient records like because whoops, we didn't configure, you know, and and right. And that's the same thing where it's you talk about energy and complexity and being being shifted. So now it's become very easy, you know, an enterprise to use these tools, but it creates other complexity where they don't have expertise per se on how do you keep track of which of the hundred Amazon services is the right one for your particular application? And oh, right. by the way, did you secure it? Do you have a cost governance model around it? Are you tagging it properly? Can you figure out what's running? Who turned it on? Where it should be That's built? Right. Did should it be turned off? Like, you know, and I love all these tools that are now out there that do nothing other than just scan your AWS infrastructure and say, hey, by the way, you've got all these EBS volumes that aren't connected to anything that are charging right. twenty thousand dollars a right. month for. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we just came full circle, Max. Yeah. When we started the conversation, we talked about the idea that um, there's a new kind of risk called the engineer, and the likelihood that they're going to make a mistake is high because we have all this new complexity. So we can have a bucket that's exposed, or we can have, you know, run a single command that affects a massive amount of infrastructure and makes the wrong change, right? And then the second piece, so there's all this complexity and there's all this room for making mistakes. And when we go back to the conversation about well, when a VC is looking at your firm, you know, should they judge you based on what platform you're using or what technology you're using? No, it's about what are your operational practices? What do you have in place that reduces the chances that you will make mistakes, that reduces the chances that you're going to fat finger something that is a one-off change, that it's not a documented change, that there was, that there was a change control review process put in place, that there's regular things that go on that ensure our infrastructure meets best practices. And it can't be a manual human audit. It has to be continuous compliance. And that's the only way you, you can sort of manage that risk. <laughs> well, Eric, I want to thank you very much for joining. Uh, we could spend a lot more time together. Sure. <laughs> next time next time we're on, I think we're going to have to debate different uh, orchestration platforms. I mean, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll have you pick chef and I'll be Ansible or we'll do like Kubernetes versus Rancher or we'll, we'll, we'll do something, something fun. Uh, well, that's not going to end well. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not, it's not designed to end well, right? No. But uh, Eric, thank you again. It's a pleasure. Yeah, you're welcome. Anytime. Thank you, Max. Thanks for joining the Tech Deep Dive podcast. At Clarksys, we believe tech should make your life better. Searching Google is a waste of time and the right vendor is often one you haven't heard of before. We can help you buy the right tech for your business. Visit us at clarksys.com to schedule an intro call.